Welcome, everyone. It is wonderful to see you all here and to see such a great turnout. Not that I am surprised at all. Uh, welcome to the 2022 Metter Lecture. This lecture was inaugurated in 1997 upon the retirement of Professor Daniel J. Metter, who was a longtime member of the University of Virginia Law School faculty. Uh, Professor Metter was born in 1926 in Selma, Alabama. He graduated from the University of Alabama Law School in 1951. After serving in the US Army during the Korean War in both artillery and the JAG Corps, he studied at Harvard Law School, earning an LLM in 1954. He clerked for Supreme Court Justice Hugo Black, practiced briefly in Alabama, and then joined the law school faculty in 1957. He stayed at the University of Virginia for most of his long and distinguished career as a teacher and scholar, with a few breaks in service to serve as a Fulbright Scholar, uh, to lead the University of Alabama as dean of its law school from 1966 to 1970, and to work uh, in the Department of Justice. Um, I have encountered Professor Metter not only as a fellow dean and former member of this faculty, but also as a historical actor in my own research on vagrancy laws. When he was the dean of the University of Alabama Law School. He hired several young faculty members uh, who turned out to um, uh, uh, provoke some controversy. They started the Tuscaloosa chapter of the ACLU, and they challenged the Alabama vagrancy law. And he was asked by one of the plaintiffs whether he knew what he was doing when he uh, uh, hired those faculty members. And he said, yeah, I knew they were going to stir things up. That's why we have tenure. Uh, and the plaintiff said, but they were junior faculty. They didn't have tenure. And he said, oh, that doesn't matter. Folks think they do. Um, so uh, uh, I think that's a, a wonderful story uh, about uh, Professor Matter. He retired in 1994. And this lecture was endowed by alumni and friends to celebrate his many contributions to the law school. Uh, and we are thrilled to have um, uh, members of the Metter family here with us today and to honor him uh, with this lecture, which is designed to promote the interdisciplinary study of law and religion uh, and to explore the influence of religion on the development of law and the interplay of religion and law in the evolution of Western civilization. And I want to thank the members of our lectureships committee, um, as well as Rebecca Claff and all of the people who made this event possible today. Our speaker this afternoon has spent his career studying the nexus of philosophy, religion, contemporary American culture, critical thought, cultural theory, and so much more. I am so delighted to introduce our Metter lecturer, Dr. Cornell West. A polymath and a public intellectual, Dr. West's reputation is such that he actually needs no introduction. But if you've ever been at an event that I welcome, you will know I am going to introduce him anyway and take great pleasure in it. Dr. West is the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Professor of Philosophy and Christian Practice at Union Theological Seminary in New York. He is also Professor Emeritus at Princeton University, where over the years he had appointments in the Religion Department, as Director of the Program in African American Studies, and as the first faculty member to have a full-time appointment in the Center for African American Studies. Dr. West has also taught at Yale, at Harvard, and at the University of Paris. He is a magna cum laude graduate of Harvard College, and he obtained his master's and PhD in philosophy from Princeton. 
Dr. West is the author of 20 books and the editor of 13. He is probably best known for his classic works, Race Matters and Democracy Matters, uh, the form of which was recently re-released in a 20th, 25th anniversary edition, and for his memoir, Brother West, Living and Loving Out Loud. We were talking last night about Dr. West's need to write new introductions to the new editions of many of his books, and I said we should all be so lucky that we are required to write new introductions decade after decade um, of what we write. Uh, Dr. West's most recent book, Black Prophetic Fire, provides a fresh perspective on six revolutionary black American leaders, Frederick Douglass, W.B.B. Du Bois, Martin Luther King Jr., Ella Baker, ba Baker, Malcolm X, and Ida B. Wells. As one reviewer put it, the book, quote, serves as a catalog of and potential catalyst for African American activist achievement, recalling the strategies, strengths, and limitations of some of the most fearless voices that ever spoke truth to power in America. In 2024, Dr. West will give the prestigious Gifford Lectures at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Called, quote, the highest honor in a philosopher's career, the Gifford Lecture series has, since 1888, highlighted the work of preeminent thinkers in what was described in the original gift bequest as the field of, quote, natural theology in the widest sense of the term. In other words, the knowledge of God. None of this does justice to Dr. West, to his breadth and depth as a scholar, to the importance of his voice for our time, and to who he is most fundamentally as a human being, which is why we are so lucky that he is here and that you all and I will get to hear from him directly in this conversation that he is about to have with his good friend and former student, Mark Jefferson, our own Assistant Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Belonging. Mark Jefferson is a graduate of Morehouse College and the University of Michigan Law School. He completed his coursework in theology at the Boston University School of Theology. He has previously served as Assistant Dean of Community Engagement and Equity, a similar role to the one he has here at Harvard Law School, and served as Assistant Director of Admissions at Michigan Law School. Before transitioning to higher education, Dean Jefferson worked as a transactional attorney at Thelen LLP. Prior to law school, he worked as a middle school teacher, a chaplain at Boston University, and for the Public Defender Service of the District of Columbia. It is my pleasure to turn the floor over to Dr. West and Dean Jefferson for a conversation entitled, Death, Dogma, and the Rule of Law, A Prophetic Perspective. Please join me in welcoming them both. Indeed. Ooh, what a blessing to be here. This is Consecrated Space, University of Virginia Law School. Mm, mm, mm. And when I heard that my dear brother Mark Jefferson was even thinking about leaving Harvard to come to Charlottesville, I said, let's have a prayer, my brother. <laughs> let's pray. What's going on down here? Because I love this brother. I respect this brother. He's high quality. He's not just a critical thinker, but many of you might know. He's a masterful literary artist with novellas and short stories. And so after the prayer, he said, no, something really is happening at the law school at the University of Virginia. My dear sister, Dean Reese is on the move. All the boff on the move, you see. And then I had a little talk with Brother Ryan, James Ryan, who happened to be Dean at Harvard in the education school. He was making a transition. 
I said, you know, I think that this is a historic moment. Your timing is right. He's always been a jazz man. <laughs> the timing is just right to come and see what's happening, how one can be a force for good. Because when you think of the Elaine Joneses, you see, I take a bullet for Elaine. We work very closely. And she said she was the first black sister to graduate from here in 1970, entering in 1967, and came out in her right mind. Because <laughs> I mean, you got the first black woman in 1967, you know something deeply is wrong, right? That's some evil's going on. You got thick white supremacy and male supremacy going on. But she came out what? In the same tradition that produced Brother Mark and I, right? In the face of all of this hatred, she's a love warrior. In the face of all this trauma, she's a wounded healer. In the face of all of this terror, she's a freedom fighter. No self-righteousness, no arrogance. She's on the ground. Now, she comes from Jim Crow, Norfolk, Virginia, so she got a jump start in life. Because there's a whole, that's where Samuel Proctor comes from, mm -hmm. one of the great pastors of Abyssinian Baptist Church. You see, the spiritual, moral formation is not just a function of skin pigmentation. She's been shaped as a human being. Integrity, honesty, decency, vision. And she comes to this place and she's unleashed to the world. Gregory Swanson the same way, 1950, right? And they yep. got to have Thurgood Marshall on the case to open the door in this place for somebody like Gregory or for somebody like Elaine. That's kind of the vanilla brothers and sisters who had the courage, <laughs> integrity, honesty, decency. We're in solidarity with you, Thurgood. We're not your ally at the moment. We're in solidarity with you. How come? We want to be decent human beings. We want some morality and spirituality, not in the sense of do-gooder, virtue signaling. No, these are the kind of human beings we want to be. That's what we're talking about in terms of the best of this place. The worst of this place, well, you could write a number of dissertations <laughs> that go on and on. But every institution, oh, Sister Mimi, so good to see you. I, was, I didn't see you over there. We, we had a wonderful dinner last night. And Brother Daniel and Mary Louise, Lord have mercy, Stuart Major's family and the legacy. He's part of those vanilla freedom fighters, the Frank Johnson and others. <laughs> At the highest level of the law, we believe in justice. Treat these black people with dignity and as full citizens, not because they deserve any kind of special treatment. They're human beings like anybody else, but they need some special attention because they've been enslaved for 244 years. They've been victims of lynching. They've been Jim Crow and Jane Crow for another 100 years. They need special attention, but they're human beings, and they're first and foremost human beings. That's what the best of this place is about. So after we've said our prayer and dialogue, he said, Brother Mark, I, I think it might be a good idea. He said, I've already decided, so don't you worry. Because <laughs> he's always ahead of me, always ahead of me. But uh, brother, it's just, a, and today's his birthday. Today's his birthday. Today's his birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, brother Mark. Happy birthday. <laughs> no, no, but this just—I'm just being honest, though. I'm, I'm, I'm blessed to be here. This is a beautiful thing. Well, Doc, I think it's—it's um, it's almost 30 years since we met, and um, everyone here can see um, what I've been blessed uh, with in my life since I've come to know you. And uh, it's a great honor 
to be with you here today, to be with you in public, and to be able to say to you uh, in public how deeply I admire you and love you, and I still can't believe that you've ever given me the time of day, but I'm so deeply grateful for you. Uh, uh, brother, salute you, <laughs> salute you, salute you. This brother, he, he has a book club. We meet every two weeks, <laughs> just with Morehouse brothers and me, and I feel highly privileged. Because <laughs> you Morehouse man, what did he say about a Morehouse man? I always tell you a can Morehouse always man. tell a Morehouse man, but you can't tell him much. <laughs> Morehouse man, Martin Luther King, Morehouse man. We can go on and on and on. But the uh, but the readings, you know, from from Thomas Hardy to uh, Gwendolyn Brooks, to Tony Morris, and to Samuel Beckett, one of his favorites, to my favorite Chekhov, and was with Eddie Glaude. He's a Morehouse man, and Paul Taylor, Morehouse man, and Chuck and Pete, Morehouse men. Mm-hmm. And we get a chance to revel in each other's humanity week after week. And it's a beautiful thing because it's a bonding that's not just intellectual, it's spiritual, it's social, it's existential, it's psychic, with a lot of humor. (laughs) A lot of humor. Laughing at each other. (laughs) That's right. Not at anybody else outside of the little Morehouse Man and Me group. Absolutely. So it's nice to really is our conversation spilling over in a way as it relates to rule of law. I think so. So death dogma and the rule of law, prophetic perspective um, is such a rich topic topic like uh, you always come up with. And and I guess my initial thoughts kept coming back to uh, dogma Yes. yes. Uh, when you shared with me what you wanted to talk about. And so how are you defining dogma here? Are you referring to dogma as a body of doctrines, authoritative? authoritatively proclaimed by a religious institution, secular institution of civil society, or are you referring to a posture we take towards our beliefs regardless of the content or both? Mm, mm, yes, yes, and I forgot about Brother Sully, professor mm-hmm. of law school at Harvard. No, for me, you know, I begin on the ground, concrete experience, and with the inescapable and unavoidable realities that we have as human beings, as organisms with language on the way to the culinary delighted terrestrial worms. And it's forms of death, forms of dogma, and forms of domination. We don't have a moment in the history of the species where we human beings have not had to come to terms with our own fears and insecurities and anxieties of the forms of death. It could be physical, but also psychic. Lack of self-confidence. It could be spiritual, hating oneself. It could be social death or slavery, for example, or civic death like black folk doing Jim Crow, part of the body of the society, but civically dead in terms of not having rights that anybody need respect. So these are all inescapable forms, no matter who we are. And dogma plays an important role, especially at a law school, because See, in the face of death, we all have desires for protection, association, and recognition. There has to be mechanisms in place that can protect us, mechanisms in place to give us a sense of belonging, of association, and mechanisms in place of being recognized, like that moment in waiting for Godot. Is Godot coming back? No, but just tell him that you saw us. Mm -hmm. We want to be seen not even solely for our externality, but who we really are, like falling in love. Really see me, baby, you show. Are you really sure? Yes, see the real me. Oh, Lord, have mercy. 
all of the good and the bad, the false, the foibles, and the virtues, right? But that's a human thing, these human desires in the face of death. Well, dogma, in its various forms, it can be imperial dogma, thinking that you're a member of the Roman Empire, the American Empire, your babies have more values than babies in Somalia or Ethiopia or Bolivia and so forth. It could be white supremacy, deep dogma, male supremacy, deep dogma, homophobic dogmas. Somehow Tennessee Williams is not as sophisticated because he's a gay brother. I'm looking for a straight playwright. Okay. Don't hold your breath too long. <laughs> Here comes Stephen Sondheim. He's gay. Can you deal with his genius? Here comes James Baldwin. Here come Audrey Lord. Can you deal with their genius? No. You're blinded. You're blinded. Now what's fascinating about dog in relation to school of law and the rule of law is that in the face of dogma is dialogue. So the unleashing of Socratic energies of questioning and scrutinizing and interrogating, beginning with oneself. Right? Socrates, the unexamined life is not worth living. The examined life, Malcolm X says, is what? Painful. Very painful. And when Malcolm says, I'm for truth no matter who says it, I'm for justice no matter who promotes it. I'm for freedom who, who, no matter who's willing to live and die for it because I'm a human being first, then I'm a black man, and I'm a Muslim. That's Socratic energy within the Islamic tradition. That's what makes him a prophetic Islamic figure. The way Martin's a prophetic Christian tradition. The way Rabbi Heschel's a prophetic Judaic figure. The way bell hooks, God bless us all. Prophetic Buddhist sister, Gandhi, prophetic Hindu, and Betker, our Dalit brother, even goes beyond Gandhi, prophetic Hindu for a while and then converts to Buddhism. But what's prophetic about it is the unleashing of Socratic energies, the courage to criticize, examine one's self. So it's not an abstract thing. Brother Mark knows that, because uh, he was kind enough to take my class, Modernity Problem of Evil. What year was that, though, brother? About 1994. 19... 94, Lord have mercy. <laughs> so looks back and wonders how we got over <laughs> almost 30 years ago. But I tell all my students in my class, you come here to learn how to die. Not just to get a grade and get a diploma. You're learning how to die, because anytime you muster the courage to criticize yourself and let go certain kinds of dogma, prejudices, presuppositions, that's a form of death. Exactly. <laughs> let that life come through the technology. <laughs> <laughs> and what emerges is learning how to live better. Learning how to die in order to learn how to live better. To love wisdom, as Montaigne says, to philosophize is to learn how to die. To love wisdom is to muster the courage to examine yourself. And we all have dogmas. And the irony is that in the end, we'll all have certain kinds of dogmas. Because you can never do away with all of them. Never. There's no such thing as a wholesale skepticism. Retail skepticism, yes. That's called mature criticism. But wholesale skepticism, no such thing. Everybody needs certain background conditions, stories, narratives, orientations that they bring into the Socratic dialogue. 
And when they leave, you're going to end up with certain kind of dogma that you have reexamined and said, I'm going for this. It's like my own Christian faith. I can read Hume, Daddy Doll, the most sophisticated skeptics in the world. And I can hear my grandmama telling me, honey, be skeptical about that skepticism. <laughs> because in the end, you might not be able to live it. And the end in life is not being sophisticated and smart and showing everybody that you're the only one who's right. The end is to live a life of compassion and courage and wisdom that allows you to pass on the best of tradition that's been bequeathed to you so maybe you can be of service to something bigger than you. That's the benchmark of spiritual maturity. The benchmark of the best of the human spirit. You see. And then dogma. I mean, then domination. Predatory capitalism. Money, money, money. Power. Asymmetric relations at the workplace. Well, Brother West, capitalism has virtues. Of course it has virtues. Technological innovation. Unleashing of highly planned economies that are crushing people. Absolutely right. No doubt about that. No doubt about that. Hayek didn't write for nothing. There's insights in the road to serfdom. But you say to Brother Hayek, there's more than one road to serfdom. You let your predatory capitalism get out of control and see what happens without mechanisms of accountability in which rule of law becomes crucial in which counter-majoritarian institutions like legal institutions not subject to just the will of the majority to protect those precious rights and liberties that are prerequisite for any kind of democratic experiment and every democratic experiment is so fragile and precious and it takes generations to build, and it can dissolve in one generation. One Pied Piper, one neo-fascist leader who wants to wipe it out. And we're not just talking about January 1933 in Germany, with its Weimar democratic experiment so weak and feeble. But it could be anywhere. It could be Italy today. It could be Sweden, Hungary in some ways already. Brazil may be on the way. USA, my God, we'll get into that. Ooh, what a time for you young people to be alive when you gotta deal with these kinds of neo-fascist perceptions, the triumph of Thrasymachus over Socrates in Plato's Republic. Might does determine what's right. Power does determine morality. I can say anything and do anything and get away with it. I don't have to in any way be rendered vis-a-vis -vis mechanisms of accountability and answerability, the shattering of Socratic dialogue. It's all about force, power. That's frightening. And all the great minds of every civilization, even though we can zero in on Plato and Socrates, but all the great minds of every civilization say, if we can't come up with alternatives to what the Greeks call pytho, persuasion, Socratic energy, rational exchange, arguments given, stories exchanged. If we, those alternatives don't work, then it becomes not just survival of the most powerful, survival of the slickest, oftentimes survival of the richest, 
and the most wealthy, and you're on your way. They're not just losing your democracy, but it's 49 BC with the crossing of the Rubicon of Caesar and the end of the experimental republic, and you're on the way to dictatorial rule. You're on the way to imperial rule with no accountability of the leaders at the top. And they say, well, can it happen in America? Get off the crack pipe. What makes you think it can't happen anywhere? As long as you have human beings in on it, it's a possibility. All the American exceptionalism, nowhere in our history do we have the possibility of going fascist. Our democratic institutions are so strong, read de Tocqueville, the French brother, he'll tell you. It's the 1830s. Read that last chapter, the longest chapter, volume three, the three races that inhabit this democratic experiment and why he thought there'll never be a, a multiracial democracy. We appreciate the candor, Alexis de Tocqueville. He's honest, because he knew how difficult it was. He knew how difficult it would be. What about the new aristocracy? It's aristocracy, what do you mean, de Tocqueville? Yes, the aristocracy of industry, organized greed at the top that begins to reshape the way in which the political system operates. The Tocqueville already began to see contours of this. This is why intellectual life is not a plaything. It's not a puzzle, it's not a game to play. The fundamental sources and resources of insights to bring to bear to make sure that the younger generation has access to the best of their traditions, with an S, from all parts and corners of the world. How will each generation attempt to build on the best of earlier generations? Well, we just want some, what's new and novel. Nothing novel is wholly novel. It's always predicated on tradition, on what came before. And you have to make choices of what came before. There's the worst, there's the best. It's very ugly, morally, spiritually, beautiful, spiritually, and ugly. And that's a question. Now, I know you got precedent in law, reasoning and the role of precedent and so forth. It's very important. It's very important. There's a whole lot of wisdom among the dead. If we had to depend on just the quick, we'd be in a world of trouble. Because most of the most profound, courageous human beings are not alive now. I, I can testify that with mom and dad. I'm not half the person my mama was. I'm not half the person my daddy was. So people come to me and say, Brother West, look like you got something going on. I said, no, not really. I know what the standards are. That's where Lane Bro Jones and, and, and Brown and the others come in, those who came before in every tradition, Irish, Italian, Jewish, Wasps, Mormon, Baptist, Catholic, Methodist, Muslim, right across the board, the best and the worst. Every legal system, especially those in the, in, in the last 100 years or so all around the world, talking about rights, talking about liberties, let's just see how serious they are in terms of substantive execution. See, that's the crucial role, and that has to do in part with the civic virtue of the citizens. Do they have the courage to raise their voices collectively when they see violation of the dignity of folk, black folk, indigenous peoples, 
whoever they are, whoever they are. It could be Jews in France. It could be Palestinians on the West Bank. It could right now be those precious sisters in Iran straightening up their backs and raising their voices in the face of unbelievable repression and oppression in the name of a great religion, Islam. Just like the Klan, in the name of my Jesus, gonna put a cross on Medgar Evers' lawn, in Martin's lawn. What kind of Jesus are you talking about, sick white brothers? And they are my brothers. I get in a lot of trouble there. When I was in Charlottesville five years, five years ago, I walked through, I told you this story. I walked through and you got the sick white brothers, the neo-Nazis, first they play in Motown. I said, ooh, very American. <laughs> How in the heck you gonna play Stevie Wonder and you wanna kill me? <laughs> and people, black folk look like me. Well, we gonna get to that. See, sometimes, when you're working at the deepest level of people's humanity and you're shaping how they come to terms with their fears and anxieties, you speak to their soul even when they hate the very folk who produce it. Like reading Virginia Woolf, oh my gosh, she's just saying everything about me and I'm a male, but I'm so patriarchal that I really don't like too many of the women around, but I can't live without Virginia. <laughs> you're very human. That's called living a contradiction and an incongruity and you're gonna have to deal with your hypocrisy. But then when he came up, I remember that one brother come up to me, aren't you the one on television all the time calling everybody brother and sister? I can't stand that. I would say, brother, I come from a great black people that told me I don't ask for anybody's permission as to who I love. You think I gotta ask for your permission whether I love you or not? And he kind of looked at me like, dang, what kind of Socratic dialogue is this going on? <laughs> And he got his mask on and his gun and a loaded gun and so Then I went evangelical on him, honestly. <laughs> I said, Jesus loves you just like Jesus loves me. I said, you choose to be a gangster. And I'm a, I was a gangster before I met Jesus and now I'm a redeemed sinner with gangster proclivities. <laughs> so you're choosing hatred, you're choosing revenge, you're choosing to hate these Catholics and these Jews and these black folk and these women and these gays and lesbians and these trans, trans, that's your choice. I come up in a culture where I have to deal with struggles against white supremacy, male supremacy. Every day I'm trying to learn how to die in order to learn how to live and I choose love and justice rather than hatred and revenge. But you catch me on a bad day <laughs> and my gangster proclivities can take over. Why? Because we're all human beings. None of us pure pristine, free of spot or a wrinkle. And that's part of the humility that goes along with any kind of spiritual maturity. And it's very difficult, I think, for young brothers and sisters of all colors to come to terms with this because you've grown up in the most commodified, marketized culture in the history of the world. It's money, money, status, status, image, image, spectacle, spectacle. Addicted to success, and not enough commitment to moral and spiritual greatness. Or what the Greeks would call arate, excellence. So you measure yourself, your position, money, status, where you live, and sometimes even your trophy spouse. I'm not just talking about Kanye, I got a whole lot of other folk in mind. <laughs> you see, all of us wrestling with it. 
And if that's all you got in life, it shows how deep the spiritual decay is, is resides. Even the new immigrants, thank God they're here as a result of pushing back the white supremacist laws in 1965. The new immigrants who come here hitting the ground, can't wait to make, seize this opportunity. I'm in America now, of course I got a critique, but I got to get my money, my status, my spectacle. What kind of human being you gonna be? You know you come into a country that has opportunities but has been predicated on whose land we own right now. Been predicated on the slavery, been predicated on the patriarchal households been predicated on subordination of workers vis-a-vis -vis capital. Gunfighter nation, frontier, that's the dominant myth, more regeneration through violence. Vagrant nation, losing sight of the humanity of those folk homeless on the block, on the corner, that's Sister Reza's powerful text. So many things getting in the way and the best we can do as human beings is what? Bear witness. Raise our voices. That's the voice. That's the, that's the anthem of black people. Lift every voice, not lift every echo. It's very important. Much of what we hear in American culture these days are expression of echo chambers. It's just all echoes. Where's your voice? Brother Mark and I, We've always viewed ourselves as blues men in the life of the mind and jazz men in the world of ideas. And you can't be a blues woman unless you find your voice. If you're going to be an imitation, sing in the shower. If you want to touch somebody's soul to help them deal with crisis and catastrophe, you better find your voice. And your voice is just like your fingerprint. It's all yours. Erica Badu's voice, so unique out of Dallas, Texas. Billy Holiday's voice, unique out of Baltimore City. Sarah Vaughn's voice, unique out of Mount Zion Baptist Church, Newark, New Jersey. I know Brother Rich know what I'm talking about. He's a jazz drummer tied to Buddy Rich and Max Roach. Now, he don't play as good as Buddy or Max. Now, I don't want to <laughs> take this thing too far. I know, but he, he plays some beautiful drums. But you know, he got to find his voice. So it is in law. And Emerson says what? He or she. He called him a genius, finds their voice, is the person most rooted in quotations as the wisdom of Ralph Waldo Emerson. He's the American Montaigne. There is no Emerson without the voices who came before. You see. And the, uh, um, and I don't go on, that's a long answer though, brother. <laughs> <laughs> that's a long answer though, Lord, 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 Lord. This is what we get every two weeks at the book club. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we close the book. Um, and that's before the cognac hit, you know <laughs> what I mean? <laughs> um, talked about a range of things, but one of the things you hit on was uh, kind of Socratic sensibilities. But yes. better than your answer uh, um, reminds me of two other concepts yes, that yes. you talk about a lot. And, and I wonder if you would speak about revolutionary piety piety as you understand it, and at the same time, um, talk about um, kenosis mm. as, mm. and both of those terms in relationship to dogma, because you talked about Socratic energy as one of the ways in which we can push back on to be constantly engaged in certain forms of self-critique so that we don't get stuck and blah, 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 blah. Right, but you also right. pointed to tradition 
you also pointed to compassion and those for me because throughout your work you've also talked about forms of revolutionary piety right? and forms of kenosis so absolutely yeah piety i think is a uh, one of the most un misunderstood terms categories uh, labels that we have because when people think of piety in the last 150 years or so, you think of uncritical deference to dogma or blind obedience to doctrine. Uh, whereas piety historically has always been much richer and deeper than that. See, piety is the virtual acknowledgement of the sources of good in your life. So what horizontally, it could go to mom or dad or aunts or uncles or teachers. Or we can go to intellectual ancestors. You can go to artists who helped you preserve your sanity. If you're down and out and feel as if you really can't make it and put on a little Aretha Franklin, Mahalia Jackson, and lo and behold, uh, Carol King, whoever it is. You say, oh Lord, I feel like I, yes, you are dependent in a beautiful way. You see, and this is not any American discourse of uh, the opposite of what the self-made, self-made, yeah, you gave birth to yourself too. You, I tried, but it didn't work out. But <laughs> you taught yourself language too. Yeah, I actually did. I got my own language, but I'm just using another one just to communicate. Oh, okay, okay, highly creative. No, <laughs> no, no, modern notions of autonomy are very important, but it's autonomy in relation to context and constraints. The Immanuel Kant's great essay on what is enlightenment. Man's relief from self-imposed immaturity. Then he says, dare to know, Horace. Oh, it's nice to invoke Horace. We appreciate that, Kant. You're in relation to a tradition. You're not out there all by yourself. Of course you're trying to be independent, but it's predicated on a certain kind of dependence. The crucial role of history. Probably the most powerful essay that I know written on party was the first essay that Rabbi Abraham Joshua Herschel wrote in English, mm. March of 1940. It's called, What is Piety? And he said, it's remembrance, it's reverence, and it's resistance. Remembrance. Tony Morrison, rememory. This. Well, what would be the right word? The, the attempt to regather what has been dismembered in your soul, in your society. It's not some abstract reminiscing. You see, it's Kierkegaardian, it's on the ground. It has to do with your lived experience. You're living in the midst of alienation and estrangement and that which is best has been dispersed. And how do you then come to a law school and say, I wanna gather and regather the best? Exactly. Even this thing, these technology sometimes, good, sometimes it gets in the way. But that's all right. I just put it in my back. But that's what Heschel has in mind. And he's writing, of course, right at the moment when our Jewish brothers and sisters are going, undergoing indescribable forms of evil. And he's saying that regathering and remembering is tied to a reverence. So it's something bigger than your ego. It's bigger than your tribe. It's bigger than your group, your race, your gender. It's tied to something grand. Some of us who are Christians call it the kingdom of God. If the kingdom of God is within you, then everywhere you go, you ought to leave a little heaven behind in the hellish world. It could be just an ideal of justice. 
but it's got to be more than justice. Ryan Honeba says any justice as only justice soon degenerates into something less than justice. If you're in it just for justice cause, people want to know, do you really care for us? Do you really love us? Do you have compassion for us? Martin Luther King Jr. didn't die for some abstract ideal called justice. He died because he loved black people. He died because he loved human beings. Be they in America, in Vietnam, or whatever. That's the stuff of justice. If it's just justice, it's just your career move. Nice little rhetoric that helps you get some position within the empire, within the capitalist hierarchy, so things become more colorful at the top, but the people still suffering on the bottom. Where's your care and concern? Brother Mark and I talk about that all the time. The wretched of the earth that the great Franz Fanon talked about. That's the stuff of justice. That's one of the reasons why even the blind metaphor of justice within the liberal discourse I've always had a little problem with. I've always had a problem with. You know, there's a wonderful letter that the great Henry James wrote to the less great Robert Louis Stevenson. <laughs> and Stevenson's a great writer, but he ain't no Henry James. Let's just be honest. No, no, that's Kenny G versus Coltrane, but let's be honest here. Uh, uh, but Henry James writes, he says, no theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. No theory is kind to us that cheats us of seeing. So if you have a framework that is so narrow, all you can see is just what you see through your lens, then it's cheating you of seeing something broader. And the same would be true in terms of hearing. If you're not hearing the cries, of folk in the prisons and hearing the cries of the white brothers and sisters living in Appalachia, hearing the cries of landless peasants in Brazil, or hearing the cries of gypsies, so-called gypsies and Roma folk in Europe, hearing anybody's cry is too narrow. And then feeling genuine compassion and solidarity. And then most importantly, acting. Now we know, and one of the reasons why uh, the jazz tradition and the blues is in many ways based on Socrates but goes far beyond Socrates is because you all know that Socrates never wrote a word so we don't want to pr promote that at the law school here. You got to write your papers and things. <laughs> but uh, uh, well Jesus never writes either and I would hope you'd be more like Jesus but that's just my evangelical moment. But he, Socrates, he never sheds a tear, he never cries. And something's wrong with somebody who goes through life and never sheds a tear. It means you never loved anybody. It was like Hamlet, so sophisticated philosophically, but he suffers from the incapacity to love. Even the friendship with Horatio, you wonder how deep it cuts. You know he doesn't love Ophelia, but he's the greatest literary character in the history of modern Europe with the inimitable Shakespeare. Socrates, did you really ever love somebody? Xanthippe's wife has tears when he comes, she comes to see Socrates, you all remember that. And what does he say? Take, somebody take her out, somebody get her out of here, can't take it. Socrates, she loves you, man. She don't need to ask for your permission. Cry, Xanthippe. 
No, get her out of here. What's wrong with you, Socrates? Ah, you need a little prophetic legacy of Jerusalem, don't you? You need those cries of affliction of an enslaved people. You need a Jesus who weeps. You need a Muhammad who's called for mercy with tears flowing inside. Something about the tears. That's blues. Right. That's the blues. Catastrophe lyrically expressed, unleashing, questioning, strange fruit. Billy Holiday with the Jewish brother Maripol right in the lyrics. What is that? That's American terrorism. That's lynching. Does that require tears? It might, but it also requires Socratic reflection. What kind of person I want to be? How does it connect to what the suffering of these people? It's that fusion of the Socratic legacy and the prophetic legacies of Athens and Jerusalem that makes so much of a, a, a difference in that way, you see. And that, that to me is something to be, be lived in the end. You know, it's not simply a matter of, um, of words. It's like the conclusion of a practical Aristotelian syllogism. Socrates says, well, the conclusion is not a proposition. It's not a set of sentences. It's action. It's a life lived. That's the answer. It's like Rilke saying, we live the answers in regard to the question. That's the moment in the raising in the sun of the genius from South Side of Chicago, Lorraine Hansberry, when Joseph Azagar, that great African intellectual from Nigeria, in that 1959 play, the daughter asked, Joseph, how are we going to deal with this anti-colonialism? How are we going to deal with empire? What happens when we push the colonial folk out and the new bourgeoisies come in, African bourgeoisies, black bourgeoisies, brown bourgeoisies, women included within the bourgeoisies, and reproduce the same greed, the same hatred, the same hierarchy, the same asymmetric power? You have to be committed to something bigger than just your race and gender and your nation. You got to be committed to something that's concerned about love that is so embracing. Yes, it is a love supreme that Coltrane's blowing. Yes, it is the love that Stevie Wonder talks about when he says love in need of love. It's the love of James Baldwin. Love forces us to take off the mask. We know we, can, we cannot live within, but fear we cannot live without. That's deeply Socratic and prophetic at the same time. Piety simply says that you humble yourself enough to try to make yourself available to the best of the traditions that had gone into the shaping of who you are in light of the new and novel circumstances. And then try to be forces of good for love and justice and democracy, and accountability, and integrity, and honesty, and generosity, and compassion, the very things that are being pushed to the margin in the moment right now in the history of the American empire, and history of the American democratic experiment. And one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why Trump is so powerful is he's generating a movement that in so many ways is a hatred of all of us. No matter what your politics is, they see the professional managerial classes as arrogant, haughty, condescending, indifferent to their suffering, callous to them. And they see a neoliberal order that is weaker and weaker. And if they can't provide an alternative, some of us tried to provide it with Brother Bernie. We broke our necks with Brother Bernie. 
We were winning in Nevada with Brother Bernie. And in comes a phone call with neoliberal Barack Obama, anybody but Bernie. Drop out, drop out, drop out. We got the most powerful and charismatic leader of all time, Brother Joe Biden, please. Oh, Lord, Lord. Now, now I did vote for him because I'm part of an anti-fascist coalition. And part of that anti-fascist coalition includes many Republican brothers and sisters who can't stand Trump's gangster activity. Based on principle. We got deep disagreements like my dear brother Robbie George, who I love dearly. He's part of the same coalition. So, you know, Biden had to be somebody who headed a coalition. I said, oh my God. It's almost like making Mick Jagger head of the James Brown band, you know. <laughs> Come on, Mick, move. <laughs> no, we love Mick, we love Mick, we love Mick. But the point is that piety has the capacity to be a force for good based on the commitment to the weak and vulnerable that comes out of the best of Hebrew scripture. The spreading of that hesed, that steadfast love and loving kindness to the orphan and widow and the fatherless and motherless and persecuted and subjugated, you see. And, uh, um, you can imagine, you know, that uh, it's not a popular word at all, but I'm very much tied, tied to it. It's the language of Wordsworth in the epigraph to the uh, immortality ode, natural piety. Not just our dependent on nature, but the fact we're always already animals and part of nature. It's not the nature over against us, but it's tied to connecting the past and the present and the future. And one of the problems of America has always been very much like the end of uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald's great novel, Great Gatsby, The Green Light. The Green Light. Gatsby goes to hell and high water. He still believed in that next to last paragraph. In The Green Light. What does The Green Light stand for? Tomorrow. We're going to solve. Tomorrow we have possibility. Tomorrow we have unlimited constraints. Tomorrow. Oh, so you're going to fetishize futurity and turn your back and not see and feel and connect with folk suffering in the present. That's the best way to foreclose the best of your future because you're not connected with the best of your past. And F. Scott Fitzgerald understood it, but his character never got the memo. And he leads toward what? Destruction. He's not the only one. It's the holy, the hollow men of Elliot. We can go on and on and on. Tony Morrison probably and Faulkner understand this probably better than any, and I know Brother Mark's crazy about Faulkner and Tony Morrison and Samuel Beckett, the Irish blues man. Try again, fail again, fail better. That's the Irish blues from a genius named Samuel Beckett. Try again, fail again, fail better. That's the story of our lives. So how you gonna fail better? Learning how to die. How willing are you willing to learn how to die in order to learn how to live with courage, to think critically, to act compassionately, to laugh at yourself self-critically, and then at the same time be able to uh, not succumb to the despair, which ought to be our intimate companions, but it should never, ever be the last word.
I'm gonna ask you one more question before we open it up. Definitely. For questions, check off time. Uh, <laughs> yeah. um, who are some of your paradigmatic prophetic figures that you consistently derive inspiration from in the context of piety and so on and so forth? Where do you draw? Yeah, see, first, that I, I look at myself as a uh, uh, mama's child and daddy's kid. So it begins in my crib, in my household. Uh, and that's very important because, you see, I've never, thank God, been obsessed with the white normative gaze. You see, and the white normative gaze is to look at yourself through the eyes of others who Du Bois said often view you with pity and contempt. Remember Du Bois' conception of double consciousness and souls of black folk. The same would be true for women. If women understand themselves solely through the male normative gaze, then you're reacting all your life. You're just a parasite on a host. Even when you're victorious and successful, you're still a parasite. You got to fall back on something grander so that your point of reference is not, how does it feel to be a problem? Which is Du Bois's question. Brother Matthew knows that from the Harvard class that we had together, right? I see Du Bois, what makes you think you're a problem, brother? Ralph Ellison, I'm invisible. No, Jamal and Letitia looking at you and they see you. Oh, I'm talking about John McGillicuddy. How come John McGillicuddy's view has a privilege? Was I ever invisible to my mama? Was I ever invisible to Shiloh Baptist Church that produced me? Was I invisible to Curtis Mayfield and John Coltrane and Mary Lou Williams and Marvin Gaye? No. It's the point of reference, you see. It's the point of reference. And so for me, I start concretely with the folk who love me. I am who I am because somebody loved me and cared for me. And when you love folk, what does that mean? You're going to get some deep criticism. You're going to protect, respect, and correct. All at the same time. And I'm sure all of you all can testify to that. Is that right? There's testimonies. So, Tell me about the love of your mama. Oh, yeah, good God Almighty. She depends on the day of the week in terms of what was coming at me. But I know she deeply loved me. Yes, that's what it is. That's what love is. Intellectually, who are the great love warriors? Anton Chekhov, atheist, goes to church every week anyway. Tears coming down his eyes, looking at the passion and saying, this Christian story is too beautiful to be true. But I identify with the love and the compassion. I just can't accept the Christian conclusions and consolation. Absolute condemnation of no one. Absolute forgiveness of everyone. Russian Orthodox Church. That's Chekhov. He's a love warrior to the core. 8,000 characters. He's loving all of those characters in his short story. Eudora Welty understood that. She's the closest we have in the history of this country to Chekhov. And she's out of gut bucket, Jim Crow, Mississippi. She's a love warrior too. But American. Chekhov is deeper than any American in a way, why? Because he's never ever been caught in romantic possibility of unlimited constraints. He's never had to react against it. He's had repressive Soviet, I mean, Russian regimes all the way through. All the way through. All Americans, to some degree, have a romantic sensibility. 
have some American exceptionalism shot through our unconscious. It's difficult. Henry Adams tried to get rid of it. And he, I wouldn't say he made a fool of himself, but he, that education was one of the great works. But oh my God, he is wrestling in a way. Iceman Cometh, Eugene O'Neill, the greatest play ever written in the history of American empire. The darkest play, because his expectations are so high, his disappointments are so overwhelming. Chekhov had no expectations. I don't expect human beings to sustain democracies. I don't expect human beings to treat people right. I don't expect whatever they're able to muster, I'm pushing it, I'm pushing it, I'm pushing it. And I'm waiting to see three sisters. And that's just one grand example of it. But it's Toni Morrison, it's Anton Chekhov, is John Coltrane, is Mary Lou Williams, but in the end, it really is mom and dad and Reverend Willie P. Cook and my vacation Bible school teacher, Sarah Ray, because they were love warriors and freedom fighters and wounded healers and joy spreaders like Louis Armstrong, almost like the Baal Shem Tov, just overflowing, just oozing out of love and joy. Dizzy Gillespie was the same way. And you all have examples in your own traditions. But those are the ones who constitute sources of inspiration for me. And it's a, uh, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. That's why B.B. Uh, you know, King can sing the blues. Nobody loves me but my mama and she might be jiving too. <laughs> and he got a smile on his face. He's playing Lucille. And you can hear in the sounds of Lucille, Robert Johnson's. Sunhouse, Ma Rainey, Bessie Smith, Billy Holiday. You can hear that tradition inside of them. So when you interact with them, like when I interact with Brother Mark, it's not just Mark, it's his magnificent mother and father and church and so forth, all in him. The best of his tradition is manifest inside of him. It gives you a solidity and a spiritual substance. Not always being right, you can deal with people you disagree with because they're on a human spectrum. Because you've been wrong many times. You're not new to being wrong. That's the kind of moral and spiritual uh, 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 substance that we need. And the sad thing is that we are, you know, we're losing it. We're, we're losing it. That, uh, when I mentioned 49 B.C., Rome, you know, I'm serious about that, that crossing of that Rubicon. And it's a sad thing for the younger generation, which means you just have to fight harder. You have to have more, more maturity, more vision, more courage, more willingness to engage with people you disagree with and, and stay in contact with their humanity. Because we pass it on to you. We'll see what you do with it. We shall see. We shall see. I think that, uh, you know, we got a, a wave of young brothers and sisters of different colors who can meet the challenge, but it's still, uh, it's still a question as to whether that can be pulled off. And in the meantime, it would be nice to save the planet. <laughs> to have something to work with, but that's another, that's a whole other issue. Mm -hmm.